Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Lift Effect podcast. I am your host, Matt McNeil, founder, clinical director, and director of human performance at Lift Effect, where we assist professional pilots with maintaining better mental health and optimizing their mental skills. The goal of this podcast is simple to help pilots and other high liability professionals and disciplines come out of the shadows to discover how we can live better lives personally and professionally. Join us each episode as we discuss various topics ranging from mental health, mental skills and performance, to business, entrepreneurship, and a few other surprises along the way. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Lift Effect podcast, where we discuss all issues pertaining to mental health for professionals, primarily in the aviation field, but also in other key high-stress, high-performance professions. So today I wanted to, before we get into the, the meat of the conversation, there were a couple of questions that came in that uh, I think Matt needs to address based on the comments that were made in a previous podcast. Before we get into what the questions are, we want to stress, please do not concern yourself on whether your name or or any personal identification will be uh, revealed. Matt is a licensed health professional in the mental health area, and he's bound by HIPAA. So hopefully people uh, will feel comfortable enough to send in in, uh, their, their questions without fear of being, um, so to speak, outed. I don't even get to see the names um, because I'm not a licensed mental health professional. Matt D identifies them and then they're forwarded uh, on to me so that I can uh, present them in in, uh, each podcast. So please keep the questions coming because this is really about you and what your your interests are as much as what us is providing information. So with that being said, got a couple of questions today, like I said, based on a previous podcast that we did. And it was regarding um, the FAA and and the uh, AME, Aeromedical Examiners, uh, in the first one. Basically, in the very first episode, uh, Matt was critical of the AME process. And uh, the, the questioner said, you said that you believe it's an effing joke. Do you really believe that? And why? And aren't you being a literally a little uh, bit overly critical on this one? And then I'm going to add, you know, I, I yes, they are people and we do care about them. But <laughs> this is about also what's best for you. So uh, Matt's going to kind of elaborate what he said about that. And does he really believe it? So. So. And if you haven't noticed, and I've been working really hard to not use foul language in this podcast because it's it's bad it's a bad habit and my my kid charges me every time i swear she's got the swear uh jar that i have to put a, bu- a buck and she wants to raise it to five bucks because she likes to buy things uh she's she's six um I want to it's, it's a terrible habit it's a, it is a really terrible habit and i know it's not it's fair it's really it's a you know it's it's gross and i don't like it and it's a lot of it is habit and a lot of it is how you're raised and where you come from and and all that but and so and i i sometimes i swear uh to make a point it's it is to to get attention 
that this, hey, this really matters. So if anyone feels offended by my, my, you know, when I, when I like drop an F bomb or whatever, I'm sorry if that offends you. That's not my intention. Not here to, um, try to rile, uh, people up in that way. I am here to rile you up though, a little bit because complacency is, is the kiss of death. And we need to do something about it. I think as pilots, as, as our community deserves better. And I, I have, I don't hate AME. I don't hate anybody. Um, uh, I don't use the word hate ever. We don't use it in our home. AMEs are, are one of my best, one of my best friends is an AME, uh, where I'm currently collaborating with an AME on, um, some study design. Eventually, I think if we ever have a medical director, if there's any need for that, it will be somebody that was an AME, right? I mean, the AMEs are a huge part of the process. So when I, say that the process is a joke. Do I, I, do I believe it's a joke? Actually, I kind of do the, the AME quote unquote game. And the reason I call it a game is, is it's this sort of don't ask, don't tell game that pilots and a and AMEs have learned to play. When you go to the aviation medical examiner, listen, I understand the FAA says we have to have some way of determining whether a pilot is fit or not. Okay, you can't just be like, yeah, whatever. It's uh, uh, just go fly and doesn't matter, right? No, it does matter, especially when you're hauling people around and you know you're hanging a shingle saying we will fly anybody, which is like one twenty one and one thirty five. You have to have some means of tracking and determining somebody's fitness. I totally get that, but this idea that you're going to go in every six months and they're going to tap on your knee, they're going to listen to your lungs. They're going to ask you maybe a question or two about your mood, if that, most don't, um, and that you're good to go. Uh, and even the AEKG thing, I mean, you talk to cardiologists, that's a terrible measure of somebody's uh, cardiovascular fitness. Lots of pilots die with their boots on, right? And all of those had an EKG in the past six months, the guys that dropped from a heart attack, right? So the FAA is in a bind because they've got to come up with some kind of standards to measure people by. The AMEs are in a bind in that they've got to administer uh, on behalf of the FAA these tests, but but guess who pays them? It's not the FAA. It's the pilot. And if an AME keeps finding people not fit, guess what's going to happen to that AME's practice? He, he finds every pilot. One. He's gone, right? It's like, And pilots know, don't go to that guy. That guy puts the rubber gloves on. And when pilots go to an AME, it's like, well, who's not going to give you too many problems? Who's just going to do the bare minimum and and not go looking for problems? My dad always used to say, don't go looking for problems. Like so when I would tinker with my car, because then I would, I would inevitably end up screwing something up, right? But you don't want the person that's going to go looking for problems. But here's the problem with that. Healthcare avoidance. And if you can look up the uh, Dr. Billy Hoffman, he's a friend of mine. He's an AME. He's in the uh, United States Air Force. He just did some, he's doing a lot of very progressive research on um, this whole process. And he did a study looking at healthcare avoidance among professional pilots. It is rampant. And the problem with healthcare avoidance is that if there is something wrong and you don't go get help, that can cost you dearly. 
It can cost you your medical. It can cost you your life. And it does with pilots. I have seen guys that have, and gals that have refused to go get help because for fear of medical disqualification. And it ended up being something very, very bad that was treatable that, but they kept ignoring and kicking the can down the road. And by the time they got it treated, it was too late. And so I think this, I'm going to go pay this guy who's going to do my medical exam. They're going to take my 400 bucks or, and it's, and the fact that it's not regulated in terms of what these doctors charge, it is extreme with what, and especially if there's a problem, what some of these AMEs charge, it's a cash cow. And it's, you come, you pay me, I give you your medical certificate. I'll see you in six months. It's this little handshake deal. And I think that as professional pilots, we deserve better. We deserve the right to go and get a a real exam to make sure that we are healthy and fit. And if we're not, there's a way that we can address that without saying, oh, you're off work now for six to 12 months and that's going to cost you. And, you know, and we're going to send you through an FAA process of, uh, you know, with no timeliness guidelines at all. They can take as long as they want to keep you out because they don't, they can't staff properly. Or because, you know, they have these committees that meet once a month to go through case review. And if somebody's out on vacation, they just don't meet that month. And so then all those pilots that are waiting could just get put back in the stack because these doctors can't get their shit together to meet. This is wrong. This leads to healthcare avoidance. This leads to this game that is played. And so that is why I said that. Do I think AMEs are a joke? Of course not. I don't think they're a joke. I think the process is riddled with holes. And what is the impact of those holes? It's that pilots don't get treated properly and don't get the help that they deserve and that they need. That's my that's my thoughts or my answer to that question. So I appreciate the question. I really do. And you can be critical. I, I appreciate the criticism. I'm absolutely uh, willing to accept the criticism and I'm willing to try to keep, you know, working to improve uh, in, in what we're offering to you. So I appreciate the question, whoever it was that sent that in. I will. Um, I'm actually going to go down just a little bit of a rabbit hole mm. based on what you've said there, because um, I think it's a very important topic, really, uh, that probably needs a little bit more. You you talked about t- the process and there's two parts to that. Um mm-hmm. the part getting you to get to the to the to the uh the flight dock and the issues that may arise. And then if any do arise, it's the process to get back onto a a flight status. Yeah. Because the uh, and and here's the part I'll elaborate a little bit. In my military career you you literally if if you could walk and crawl into your jet you would do everything you could to get in there and avoid the flight dock yep. it just that was just the yeah. way it was especially in a in a uh, in flying fighters you because of all the high g's and everything there were people with back and neck injuries or or issues that would do everything they can to avoid that because they wanted to continue to fly and stop pointing at me. <laughs> that was rude. Just rude. 
I won't forget that one. Yeah, I know you won't. Um, I know. But and and then when you look at it as a as in the in the civil aviation field, mm-hmm. any issues that drive you to be um, uh, out of the cockpit for a period of time, you really have two options. One is you use your sick leave until it's gone and then you have any left right yeah if you have any and then you're without pay so to speak because the only time you really get paid by and large is when you're in the cockpit and, and it's flight time not not just sitting in the cockpit per se and the other is if you're if it's out long enough you go on uh what they call ltd long if you have if you have it yeah and, and not all every, pilots have it, it and not every policy is the same no they're not and yeah. and it's at a reduced pay rate Yep. So you're not getting anywhere close to what you were making. So there's a financial impact that people also take into account. Yeah. So with that being said, uh, of, of those are the things that people are constantly balancing. It, I'm talking more about there's a there's a reluctance to really open up to your AME because that they're not they're not there to look at that. And obviously, safety is very very important. But then when something does happen, the process to get back to flying status is is um, quite it's, lengthy. It's a Gordian knot sometimes that you have to try to untie. It's lengthy. It's unclear. It's case-by-case decision. It's brutal. And it's, it's so stressful. You want to know how to create mental health issues? That's how you create mental health issues. It's not the even. It's not even sometimes the issue that the the pilot went out on that's most significant. It's, it's the process of trying to get back, of being poked and prodded, and all of this, mind you, is at the pilot's own expense. Insurance companies don't underwrite, and especially when we're talking about mental health issues, exper- uh, insurance companies don't underwrite neurocognitive testing that the FAA requires. They don't. They don't underwrite unnecessary psychiatric evaluations on the FAA's behalf. They'll say, you don't need that. You've already been evaluated. You don't, you have depression. You don't need a full psychiatric workup for depression. That's not why you go to a psychiatrist. Depression is diagnosed in the, the GP's office or in the mental health professional's office. It's not, it's not, you don't go to a, you go to a psychiatrist and psychiatrists don't want depressed patients. They want the more complicated things that require extensive evaluation and medical, you know, pharmacological intervention. An SSRI is not a complex pharmacological intervention that requires a psychiatrist. And so oftentimes these pilots will say, well, I got to go do a psychiatric evaluation with a board certified psychiatrist. And now it's going to take six months to get on the books to even get an appointment with one. And much less find one that understands the FAA, understands the the process, because most of them go, what the hell is this about? That's crazy that the FAA is making you do that. That doesn't even make medical sense. And, you know, all of this is, oh, the insurance company's not going to pay for that. They're like, you don't need that. That's not necessary. Well, the FAA requires it. They're like, yeah, well, too bad. <laughs> We're not going to pay for that. These are expensive evaluations. And so a pilot's out on reduced or no pay. And now they've got to cough up thousands of dollars to prove that they're fit to be able to, to go back. And the FAA has no guidelines in terms of how quickly they make their decisions. I can't believe that the that the underwriting uh, industry, like 
like you know the reed group or um y- you know uh the, the the big underwriters that do the long term, short term, long term disability that they are even that they're putting up with this because this is costing the underwriters. And look, nobody feels bad for insurance companies. I sure as hell don't. But like they're underwriting this stuff and trying not to, by the way, um, d- denying claims that I then have to write letters and you know have to talk to these underwriters all the time, trying to say, listen, you don't understand. It's it. This is a pilot. And there's these protocols that they have to go through so that they can go to work. Just because they can, they're, they're high functioning doesn't mean that they can work. Actually, they can't. The, the FA has to say they can work, and they go, "Well, when is that going to happen?" Well, you know, we don't know because uh, as you know, an example, we've applied a, and it's been months and months. Someone who has a, a um, an issue with depression mm. of some kind of depression and is out for a period of time, and then. Finally, everything looks like they're ready to go. And now they apply to the FA. Since COVID, the C word, um, the number of people that have have having these kind of issues has exploded, which makes it that much tougher to even find people to, to actually see them, to help them. But let's just say they get it and they're finally back in a position where they're ready to go back to into the cockpit. Based on what you're seeing right now, that has gotten quite lengthy. I, I believe you. Uh, it's over a year now, isn't it? It's you taking if you're taking medication. Well, from the process of when they submit everything, and we've covered this in a previous episode, so you just, guys can go back to, and, and just listen. Putting it all right? together. But but if you are on a SSRI medication, the fastest I've had anybody go back after we've submitted everything, they've done all the testing and got that all scheduled, which took months. They've been on their stable dose of six months or, or a minimum of six months. Then they go get all the testing, which takes months to do. And then they go and get their, do their flight physical with a, a HIMS AME. And then they submit the whole package of information to the FAA. The fastest I've had them go back is eight months from that time of submission. That's the fastest. Sometimes it's longer, significantly longer. If they're not on medication, it's a little quicker, a little, like maybe a few months quicker, but not that quick. And the FAA is saying, well, we've hired more doctors. And thank you, Dr. Northrup, for hiring more phys- uh, psychiatrists. I That's a good, good move, yes. But look, only 0.3% of pilots are taking an SSRI, which is statistically impossible, right? And they're saying, we want every pilot to report. And I'm like, well, okay, if you had every pilot report that's mm. depressed and was good, how would you handle? I mean, it's already taken you nine months. How would you handle the 20 to 30% that probably should be uh proper that you know that should be properly treated where medication may be warranted? How would you even handle that? So it takes you nine months and it's 0.3%. So it's a this is a, a serious it's like like this. It's like you know, they want you to come on, please come forward, but yeah, we don't have the capacity to even come close to being able to handle that. This is a serious challenge. And it's because of this, if you have depression, if you have anxiety and you're being treated, well, we've got to put you through the ringer to make sure that you're, you know, you're quote unquote fit, right? And that's and that's what's keeping the, the skies safe. We've got it. We're capturing it. Well, no, you're not. Because there's lots of pilots that are flying with depression and anxiety. They're doing it every day and they're not crashing airplanes. They're not bending metal. They're just suffering and they just will keep doing it until they literally can't anymore. And then the pilots call out. They don't show up when they can't fly. 
pilots have more common sense and more professionalism than that. They will push to the point where they they're like a professional athlete, right? They're going to they're going to play on a broken bone as long as they can keep running up the field, but as soon as they can't, they stop and they pull themselves out. But the damage is just so extensive at that point that this could have been avoided. So I understand if they're on medication, they need to be evaluated, they need to be it needs to be shown that they are fit. But this, if you have depression or anxiety and you're getting some help, you need to report this. And then we've got to make some decisions on it is uh, there's plenty of call for that to be changed within the mental health community. Huge call for that. To sum this question up, uh, since I'm the non-mental health professional here in layman's terms, what what I've gathered out of all of our conversations, and um, obviously you'll correct me if I misstate is that to hesitate and delay just causes more problems to be mm-hmm. proactive and address things before they happen actually will will help you because if without doing that you you can actually get anxiety and be and cause more issues totally. by just looking at the whole process going oh yes. my god I'm not going to get back there yep. so if you kind of address it beforehand and 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 nip, so to speak, nip it in the bud when you start seeing these things. It's not it's not a sign of weakness. It's it definitely oh, it's not a, a sign it of is, weakness. It's a sign of prudence that you go and say, "I'm going to get some help." And that's the whole mission wisdom, of, of, of wisdom. Yeah, it's good common sense. That's the whole mission of Lift Effect. Is uh, listen, we're here to help you no matter where you're at in the process. And most of the time, guys are like bleeding out on the side of the road, and women are just, they're tapping out because they've been pushing and pushing for so long. Again, it's generational uh, and we're here to help you. And we tell you, listen, don't, let's get you better and then we'll go and get you back. And the FAA, I actually think the FAA is quite reasonable in terms of getting people back. I don't have a problem with the FAA making a decision. It's the timeline that I, that, that is my big gripe. And, and, you know, Dr. Northrup is totally aware of that. And she's a very progressive a federal air surgeon. I think the most progressive federal air surgeon we've ever had. Um, and she's doing a lot of really good things, right? And the FAA is in a super tough bind. They got a lot of things to manage. It's not, the, they're not the monster. Okay. It's the process. That's the monster. It's the, the, the mentality. That's the monster. Um, but yeah, you, we want you to reach out early. That's, it shouldn't be our system of healthcare should it's really, it's sick care, right? Wait till you get sick, then go to the doctor. But anything in medicine is about preventive medicine. And so it come in early. Let's let's get on top of it and let's not make a small problem become a really, really big one. That was a little bit longer of a question than we normally take. <laughs> so the, this Matt, was the next I was one. long-winded. What? Yeah. Thank God I was the short-winded one. Um, this next question, because uh, it kind of dovetails to a little bit of this, mm-hmm. should be hopefully a little bit quicker and um, still address the issue. And the question was, why doesn't the FAA allow ADHD? Mm-hmm. And aren't there a lot of pilots out there that have ADHD? Yeah, the good, great question. And um, I was recently at uh, uh, on a panel um, where Dr. Northrup actually s- said they're really looking into this issue. And this is on one of her, um, you know, I think of one of her hot lists of, of things to address is let's look at this ADHD thing because part of the problem is, is 
generationally, I think it was quite overdiagnosed um, in in recent years past, where it's like all these people were found to have ADHD, were diagnosed with it, and then as soon as the pilot reports it, it's like eh, that's disqualifying. Now you have to prove that you don't have it, which is a whole neurocog type of you know battery and process, which is lengthy and expensive, and so the the overdiagnosis of it is an issue. Um, but I think also this idea that does ADHD make the pilot less apt or able to do their job? And ADHD is a very complicated diagnosis. It's not something that you you should be, you know, you get a diagnosis in five minutes, right? A proper diagnosis of ADHD requires neuropsych, and it's it's a you know minimum of four hours to be able to properly make that diagnosis. And there's many different types of ADHD. There's different kinds of ADHD. Um, and so I think the question is, is it really depends. One of the issues that the FAA has is that the medications that are prescribed for ADHD affect your central nervous system. And the FAA has this sort of like hammer policy of anything that affects your CNS is a no-go, right? Which is a bit, silly to categorize all these pilots say well this could affect your central nervous system so we're just going to say no is really bad medicine it's bad policy and it's it's bad science um and i think that they know this i think that they're looking at this so that was been their stance in in years past and i think that they're maybe starting to come around to this idea that it should be changed do pilots have adhd uh yeah what are some of the symptoms of ADHD? Hyper ability to focus. Well, can we do, do we, do we see that in our, yes, of course. That's a, that's a benefit of, of <laughs> in some respects that can be an asset of ADHD is this hyper ability to focus. And lots of pilots have a hyper ability to focus. Um, so this stigmatization of ADHD means you're running around being disruptive and you can't function is like just this sort of like stigmatized nonsensical idea of what ADHD is. But do pilots have ADHD? Yes, of course they do. Do, do pilots have depression? Yes. Do pilots have anxiety? Yes. At the same rates that the general population does. And I don't know what the rates of ADHD are. Um, we suppose we could probably look at that and try to put it in the notes. Uh, for this episode, but but yeah, I think pilots absolutely have ADHD, and and it doesn't necessarily mean that they can't do their job. They can't do their job very effectively, and being you know, but ADHD is can be really debilitating when you're not in a situation where you need to hyperfocus. It can be, it, it can, and it can mimic anxiety. It can mimic depression. It can look like those other conditions, and when you treat the ADHD properly, then all of a sudden the mood issues. That are associated with it clear up. So ADHD is something that you know you should have treated and you should have addressed. You don't have to treat it with with drugs, although the evidence is that drugs are the most effective treatment for for ADHD. But there's behavioral treatments that you can you can approach those conditions with as well that that help alleviate those symptoms, which can be really debilitating. They can be really destructive, and they can lead to a lot of really bad things for people. We we actually talked about some very interesting things on the last episode. That uh, that was kind of what, what this episode was really this podcast episode was going to be really talking about. Mm. So um, we'll we're going to try and do questions 
every uh, every podcast if possible. But uh, we want to kind of touch on some of the things we talked about last time. Uh, one of the things that intrigued me, and the, and you can take it wherever you want, was when you started talking about the generational pieces uh, that you kind of fo- uh, you mentioned. That was a quite an intriguing conversation because I can see it both from a mental and just from a day to day day to day interaction. So I'm going to throw that one out to you, lob a, lob you a softball, and you place it where you want. Well, what's I don't think I, I think I missed your question there, Carl. I what's didn't the give question? you a question. Oh, you just want me to rip? You want I, me to rip? I, yeah, I, I'm I'm letting you free form it and about generational stuff or about yeah. You were talking about the, when we were talking about the mindset with the the differences oh, yeah. in the generational, and uh, that I felt like that was almost an incomplete piece because it was near the tail end of last podcast. Well, episode. and I don't think uh, I guess I don't I don't really I don't know about the the what the data is on like you know generational in terms of uh baby boomers gen xers millennials gen z but i think in terms of phase of life um you know there's young early childhood teenage years young adult adult middle age older adult geriatric right um i think as we progress in life we tend to think we know what's what in some respects we do but that can lead to this tendency to 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 think I I already knew that, or I know that can can lead to some fixed mindsets. You know, it's funny. Like when I <laughs> when I coach people, the most dangerous thing that they'll say is, "Well, Matt, I already knew that." It's like, well, if you already knew it, then. Why don't you do so? What then? You know, if you if 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 I was like, listen, you need to do this and this to start to move the needle in the other direction. You know that that is more adaptive for you. And they go, yeah, I already knew that. I said, well, no, you didn't, because if you did, you'd be doing it. So this idea of and think about that. The implications of that is like if your mindset is fixed around this, you're not going to do any. You're not going to change. And growth is about embracing your failures. There's a great book on mindset if you're if you want to get deep into it by a researcher named Carol Dweck, and she wrote a, a recent book, which is a I think it was a, a, probably a New York Times bestseller, but it's called Mindset. And one of the things that she that she talks about is this embracing your failures is a a way of pushing yourself from fixed into growth, and. She talks about Michael Jordan and how he, it's very famous. Everybody knows this sort of quote of his. A lot of people know it, but where he he embraces failures. And one of uh, his favorite ads for Nike, he, he says, I've missed more than 9,000 shots. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game winning shot and missed. And you can be sure that each time he went back and practiced the shot a hundred times, right? That's this idea of embracing your failures allows you the the latitude to grow and to to approach your your failures with with strategies to try to improve. But one of the things I think, you know, I've been asked, um, there was a couple other questions I got after last episode about mindset, which was, well, can you give me some examples? of elite mindset. And so I made a, a, a just a little list here of some elite mindset examples and average average mindset examples. So again, elite mindset would be a growth mindset and I think the more average or or low mindsets would be fixed. 
So elite mindset examples would be, um, uh, I'm not going to allow myself to feel sorry for myself. I'm going to stay patient in the face of adversity. The race to excellence has no finish line. You don't rise to the occasion. You sink to your training. That's a big one for flying. You don't rise to the occasion. You actually sink to the level of your training, which is why you want to take the training seriously, why you want to show up and get as much out of it as as you can. Not dead, can't quit. And look, there's times where quitting is important. We'll we'll talk about that. Knowing in, when in, to in, quit. Knowing when to quit is is a is a big piece, right? Um, make adversity your advantage. That's an elite mindset. Um, the best team never wins. It's the team that plays the best. See, winners all the time in the NFL. Yeah, yeah. Winners, winners and learners, right? Winners and losers. I mean, learn. No, losing is a, ch- a chance to learn. Elite mindsets, they focus on controllables. They don't focus on things you can't control. And this is the biggest one. And this even gets into mental health. Elite mindsets focus on the present. Not the future, not the past. Being in the moment. Being in the moment. That's the only thing there actually is. The past is gone. The future has not happened. The present is a gift. That's why they call it the present. It's the only thing that's actually real is the present moment. And in, in sports psychology and in, in mental skills training, it's called the process. It's like if you're pushing back from the gate and you're so worried about the arrival because there's weather on it that you can't get the engine started, you can't follow your taxi instructions. Well, that's you lost the process. Because you're trying to figure out the outcome. Forget the outcome is a result of what you do. It's the process, which is moment to moment, right? Get the pushback, get the flaps down, start the motors, set the brake, make sure the area is clear, understand your taxi instructions. Let's get to the runway. It's like worrying about the the the, the approach. It's like, well, let's 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 see if we can just get to the runway first. Let's do that. And then let's get through the takeoff. Then let's get through the, the climb out. Make sure we hit those restrictions. And then let's get up to cruise and get ourselves set up for that. And then maybe we'll start looking at, you know, what what we have in front of us. So the process is is most important. Now let's look at some some average mindsets or or some fixed mindsets. In terms of in the performance area, where's emotions on their sleeve? That's an average mindset. That's fixed. Feels like they get cheated. Gets out of control mentally and emotionally. I worked hard yesterday, so I'm going to take today off. It's a big one. When I win, my work is done. When I pass the ride, my work is done. Mm-mm. Shies away from adversity. Has a belief that there's winners and losers in life. Labels situations as good or bad. They're neither. They just are. Does a lot, a little. It's a big one. You do a lot, a little, right? Like elite mindsets do a little, a lot. That's the concept of compounding interest. Average fixed is I'm just going to do a lot and then I'm not going to do, I'm just not going to do anything after that, right? Just going to do it all at once. And then that's, that's average. It's fixed. Focuses on non-controllables. That's a fixed mindset. 
tries to be perfect over present. Works hard at craft, cuts corners elsewhere. I mean, what's the, what's the most important part of the flight? It's pulling into the gate. Because if you finish weak, that's what you're going to remember. We only remember the last thing we did. This is some of the laws of learning. Remember the laws of learning when you got for the instructors out there? Remember what they were? Readiness, exercise, effect, primacy, intensity, recency, reaper. <laughs> right? Those are real things. And the last thing we did is what we integrate. So when people start, you start pulling into the gate and, and you got, you, you, know, you click your seatbelt off and you're just doing that, especially for FOs that aren't really in charge of taxing. They start just kind of like relaxing. That's actually the last thing you're going to remember from what you did. I mean, there was a famous skier. I remember, he, uh, what was his name? I can't remember his name, but they, they asked him what was the most important part of the ski run. And he said, it was, it was being on the flat part, going to the chairlift. That was the most important part of the run. And if he didn't finish that strong, that's the thing that he integrated. That's what he remembered last. So that's the difference between growth and fixed. And we all have tendencies to do both. Very strong tendencies to stay in fixed. Because I think that we're sort of set up for that. There's a lot of, it's, it's, a lot of things are set up for that. But it's not, you're not one or the other, right? You just have times where you're, you may have a propensity towards one or the other. So I just, I wanted to just clarify that because I think people were maybe, a, a, there was some confusion about, well, what does this actually really mean? Fix versus, versus growth. For me, I, I've always heard people say, oh, you want to celebrate your victories. And yeah, that's a good thing. But sometimes celebrating your failures can be just as illuminating because my father used to say, you show me someone who has never failed, I'll show you someone who's never tried. Mm -hmm. Because people want to minimize those things. And the key really is, I think it's not so much that you fail, but that you fail forward. Yeah. And that's a term that I've always said, you know, you've you're, you know, it's the old saying with um um Alexander Bell, how many, how many times did it take to do the to, to get a light bulb? You failed 200 times. And he just said, Well, I found 200 ways not to make a light yeah. bulb. And yeah. so that's the key is that you're constantly moving forward and that you're not looking at as, as a, as a detriment. That yeah. doesn't mean that you want to fail like landing the airplane, but that's why you have training to sit there and, and get the comfort level and, and to get that, get that um, feeling of confidence that you need. So that as you hit that piece, that point in the process, because at some point, if you taxi out, take off and are en route, guess what? That arrival will become the moment. Yep. So it, but when you're taxing out, that's not the moment. It's not the moment. That's not what's real. What's no, real the way, is the I, moment. I just have to say, since you were sequentially doing all those things, I, my flying was a little bit different. I never put the flaps down before I started my engines, but that's just me. Just wanted to. Yeah, it depends yeah. on the aircraft you have. Yeah. You, it depends uh, on your procedure, but. Yeah, I, mean, I never had yeah. that. That's a. See, yeah, I learn everything yeah. when I talk to you. you yeah. <laughs> right. But I mean, um, it, it, and so let me let me just do let me challenge the listeners. I'm going to give you guys homework, all of you guys and gals. Here's what I want you to do: BFS, body language, focus, self talk. I want you to think about when you're at your best, and I want you to think about when you're at your worst. And when you're at your best, what does your body language look like? Right? 
What's your posture look like? Where do you hold your head? How do you put your shoulders? When you're at your worst or when you're struggling, what happens to your body language? It shifts. Guarantee you, it shifts. Second, when you're at your best, where are you focusing? I bet you you're focusing on what's in front of you in the moment. And when you're struggling, think about when you make a mistake, where does your focus go? Probably goes future focusing or past tensing. Probably thinking about the past or thinking about the future. And then what is your self-talk? When you're at your best, how do you talk to yourself? Like, hey, man, this is this, I got this. Let's go. We could do this. This is let's how do you speak to yourself? And when you're at your worst, when you're struggling, how do you speak to yourself? Because I guarantee you your self-talk changes. And you probably talk to yourself when you're when you're struggling, you probably talk to yourself in a way in which you would never talk to your best friend. You would never talk to your child that way, but you talk to yourself that way. And you can, you can literally traumatize yourself with the way in which you're talking to yourself and your body language. You can change that. Your focus, where you focus, where you focus your attention is where your energy goes, where you focus, you can change that. And the way that you talk to yourself, you can change that. You absolutely can change. I'm not saying sit in the mirror and do positive affirmations. That's not what I'm talking about. But you can recognize, okay, I'm really beating myself up here. I'm talking really poorly to myself. And those things affect performance. And those things help direct whether you're in a fixed mindset or whether you can move over into a growth mindset. So that's my challenge for listeners. Try it out and let us know how it goes. Let us know. What do you discover? Be curious. Be like Sherlock Holmes. And do it when you're out online. Do it when you're in different parts of your life. It doesn't just have to be when you're flying, but in all aspects of your life, pay and start paying attention, right? When you're feeling at your best, what are you doing with your body? Where's your focus? How are you talking to yourself? And when you're struggling, when things aren't really going your way, how do you hold yourself? Are you starting to kind of lean over? Are you starting to close up? Is your focus become really about the future or about the past, about the past wounds? And then do you start talking to yourself pretty badly? You start kind of beating yourself up? Pay attention. That's the first step to starting to change your mindset. What I would say to that is that you should acknowledge when you've done something that isn't quite up to the standards you want. Of course. It's how you react to that. And and like you say, um, uh, do you sit there and beat yourself up or you go, okay, these are the areas that I need to, f- to address and to work on. To me, to me, it doesn't change the fact that it did that whatever happened wasn't up to the standard or the level it was supposed to be, but it's how you address it again. Uh, the way I word it is we'll fail forward. Yep. So um, my time around you has taught me that the mindset and how you approach things is so important. And I, I'll ask you what your takeaway is in a minute for today's talk. But to me, it's always about being in the present. Because like you say, too much is focused on the past and trying to relive something that you cannot change. Now to learn, okay, where did I make a mistake? That's one thing. But to, like you say, to sit there and drown and wallow in self-pity or, or, or regret isn't going to change where you are. And what, it, what is going to happen yeah. could change based on whether you say yes or no at any moment in the future. The only thing you got is what is here right now. And that and I'm going to throw something very personal in here because of what I've seen in my in my life, and that is when it comes to relationships, where just as important as flying 
is how we address things and live in our personal life. And what I would tell our listeners out there is never leave anything unsaid. Always, because you never know what the future holds. And I just think that's really, really important because people live with regret. I wish I'd said this because something negative may happen, i.e. a death or something. Mm -hmm. Don't ever leave it. The future is not uh, is not a given. And unfortunately, what you do in the present will become the past. And sometimes it is fixed because you cannot cannot go back and say, well, I'm going to say this now. I meant to say that. I'll say this. If it's too late, it's too late. So never leave anything un- left unsaid and, and deal with where you are right now. Don't worry about the past and don't fret about the future because the only thing is guaranteed is what's happening right now. And I, I agree. The present's what's happening. The present's where it's at. And I think the one thing I would leave is choose yourself first when it comes to your health. The greatest asset that you have in your life is you. It's not your income. It's not your epaulets. It's not the number of stripes you have. It's not the type ratings you have. It's the greatest asset that you have is you. And if you don't take care of yourself, you can't do all the things that you need to do to to create the life that you want to have. So don't kick the can down the road. If you feel like you're struggling, if you feel like you're not optimal, if you're hurting, it really makes a difference if you address it early than if you wait for things to get out of control. If it's out of control, then you need to address it. But choose yourself first and you won't have to 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 just react to things coming, you know, the wheels coming off. That's my that's my wish. That's my hope. That's our whole mission at Lift Effect is to provide you with resources so that you can have actual health care, not sick care. I think that's going to kind of wrap up today's podcast. On a personal note, I just want to say to everybody out there that has listened to our our podcast so far, we are so grateful and appreciative of the number of people that have already tuned in and listened. It uh, We're just, just ec- ecstatic. And we hope that that number just continues to rise because the whole goal is to reach people and to help them, whether through knowledge or through questions that are being asked. And if nothing else, a place to turn when they didn't know where to turn. That was the whole premise of this to start with. And that's where we're going to continue to go with. So we want to thank you so very, very much because you are the reason why we're here. Keep questions coming. Podcast at lifteffect.com. And they are kept in confidence. This is for you. So take advantage of it. And we will address your questions when we receive them. Thank you so very, very much, and we hope you have a great day. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Lift Effect Podcast. If you want to dive deeper into this episode and every episode, go to our website, lifteffect.com forward slash podcast. If you're enjoying the show, we would love it if you'd follow us on Spotify and rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate your support. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, all with the ID Matthew McNeil. This show is brought to you by Lift Effect, a clinical mental health and consulting company that assists air carriers, corporate flight departments, pilot unions, and commercial pilots by providing comprehensive psychotherapy and mental skills coaching services to pilots with mental health and mental performance-related issues. Visit lifteffect.com 
That's L-I-F-T-A-F-F-E-C-T dot com to book your free consultation. And finally, this podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of counseling, psychotherapy, medicine, or any other healthcare service, including the giving of medical advice. No therapeutic or provider-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and any materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional psychological advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining advice for any psychological or medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on the Lift Effect Podcast.